Hey, this is Jim, and you're listening to the podcast edition of the Jim Toth Show. Hear us live weekday afternoons from 1 till 3. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hey, now with this weather, we wanted to check in with farming and farmers and the farming community and president of the Keystone Agricultural Producers of Manitoba, Bill Campbell, joins me now once again. Bill, how are you doing? Well, pretty good, Jim. Excellent. Things are going okay so far? Well, yes. Uh, I actually happen to be away from home right now, uh, attending the Canadian Federation of Agriculture summer meetings in Saskatoon. So I I missed some of the weather that uh, went through Manitoba last night. Well, lucky you for missing it, but poor you for having to be in Saskatoon. No, I'm kidding, Bill. I'm kidding. (laughs) The the rivalry there is at the front there. Um, What's being discussed today? I'm interested. At uh, the, the CFA meetings? Yeah, just what, uh, not just today, but overall, what are some of the main topics that uh, you're addressing there with, uh, with everybody? Well, we uh, realize that the Canadian Agricultural Partnership uh, will terminate in 2023. So there's the meeting with the federal, provincial, and territorial ag ministers with regards to the next ag policy framework for the next five years. And in that discussion, we're dealing a lot about the business risk management tools and also some of the environmental concerns and and how those are being addressed uh, through agriculture uh, from the federal government. And so there's lots of discussions. Uh, We're also having some discussions internationally with the World uh, uh, Farmers Union and uh, a lot of broad discussion with farmers across Canada uh, at our summer meeting. Excellent. Well, there's a lot of things on the uh, on the forefront, I'm sure, from this. Uh, is everybody pretty upbeat with where everything's going? And, and, and despite all the struggles the farming community has had right now? Well, I think there's always optimism in, in the ag community, uh, or else we wouldn't do what we do with regards to taking those investments and uh, making them and hoping that Mother Nature provides you the right environment to be able to provide food for this country and, and the world. So there's always that sense of optimism, but there's also a sense of realism and the challenges that agriculture is facing these days um, with regards to trade impacts, transportation impacts, and global issues. And so there are, um, you know, significant challenges and discussions about how we best deal and cope with those particular issues as a nation. Excellent. Well, I wish you well with those meetings and thank you for taking some time today. To join us, we sort of wanted to talk about the recent weather where we're at and, and if the heat is yeah. helping crops grow. But maybe we'll just revisit um, where we're at at this July with, with across the province of Manitoba on seeding and, and, and farming. I know different parts of the province were affected differently, but overall, how, how is the province doing now that the, the seeding that did get done was done? Is it, is it growing? Well, I think we're uh, realizing with the some of the heat uh, that we've been having and uh, some of the rainfalls that the the drought is not impacting us anymore and so with these temperatures we have seen rapid growth of the crop that is essentially established uh, we are having concerns with regards to the unseeded acres and the crops that have been drowned out and the overland flooding and the ponding on the fields that just what will our production be this year I think it's a little early to assess that at this point in time. Um, we, we essentially don't know what we're going to put in the bin yet. So, but we have seen those temperatures bring about. We, we realize that we're two to three weeks late and those, 
uh, temperatures have been making crops grow. But I think we need to realize that that warm weather and humidity bring about the potential for violent and intense weather and storms. And some of those have been going across Manitoba in the last 10 days and two weeks. And so um, that brings additional pressures as we ask for this beneficial weather that there, there has been some consequences and some plow winds and tornadoes and those that have been in the line of those are, are certainly affected and it, it causes tremendous amount of damage to those producers and those those farm sites and their and their crops. So overall the heat's helping but then there's more challenges as well Bill. Yeah, there's the risk with that, those intense uh, violent storms. When we see hail, uh, you can get uh, hailstorms that can virtually write, write your crop off, like it'll virtually eliminate it, uh, depending on the intensity in that part. And the winds can have consequences in your infrastructure, your granaries are gone, uh, those particular things, your equipment can be uh, uh, damaged. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's to be aware of it and, and that part as well. And so we need to ensure that farmers and society have the ability to deal with the consequences of these high water levels. We need to be able to move our stock, our feed, our equipment to higher levels. But we also need to be quite aware that we maybe maybe make sure that when we have a power outage that we have a generator Uh, and you may wonder why you would need a generator in the summertime but there's always that sewer backup so we don't have flooded basements and we also need to realize that our deep freezes need to work in the summertime and um, the risk for food spoilage and and uh, that part of it needs to be made aware of so we encourage people to act proactively even in the summertime with uh, with ensuring that we can deal with some of these weather consequences. Indeed. What what would be the optimal forecast from right now today going into the fall for, for most farmers? And we'll start with the cedars. Well, I guess ideally, and I guess every every person has their own interpretation of the ideal weather, whether you're going to the beach or whether you're haying or whether you're in shoveling grain out of a bin or whatever. But I, I think that idealistically, if you could run that 28 degrees, uh, low humidity with a slight breeze uh, to keep the mosquitoes away while you're going about some of your tasks, and just that warm temperature at night to enhance the crop growing, um, there will be the potential that we may need one more rain, but uh, somewhere in mid-August, but timing will be important as we get closer to harvest. Um, there is the potential now where we will have weather impacts at harvest time. Uh, Moisture draws moisture, and so we may be having mature crops and having them not necessarily in ideal condition. And so how we go about storing those crops, how do we harvest uh, some of our in-ground crops with the vegetables, the potatoes, all of those things. So uh, like I say, like not everybody likes the same flavor of ice cream. Not everybody likes the same temperature out there. But I think in agriculture, we take 28 degrees for a long time yet. Yeah, that would be great for sure. And I just want to get back to the heat question, the humidex and what we saw and what we're experiencing this week or saw on the weekend, what we're experiencing this week as well. What's that like for livestock, Bill? Well, it, it certainly has an impact on them. And, and if you travel the countryside, you will see the livestock kind of congregate in water. They're, they're no different than kids. They like to get to a paddling pool. So they like to find those water sources and they'll get in there uh, and 
uh, try and cool off a little bit. But it, it's really good or opportunistic if you can provide them some shade. And that's where the trees are at, and that's where that gentle breeze will help. And so we need to be able to provide some of those environmental aspects. And, you know, I encourage producers to deal with some of the pests that uh, come around livestock, the flies, the horn flies, uh, some of the mosquitoes as well, you know, to utilize the, the proper tools to ensure that they are not causing them to uh, uh, run and, uh, you know, overheat themselves to try and avoid these pests, uh, provide the back rubbers and some of those particular things. And we need to make sure that some of our livestock operations has the proper ventilations, their fans are running and get that air circulating and monitoring the temperatures and using that part because that's a huge component if we have power outages as well to make sure we have those uh, power uh, alternative supplies so that we don't have that intense heat buildup in in some of our operations and um, livestock generate heat no different than humans and so they they need to be able to cool themselves down and and get in the right place and shade. Yeah, understood. And last one for you, Bill, is we talk about supply chain all winter long. And, and I mean, we're mm-hmm. we're seeding, we're seeing some things happening and people pivoting if they didn't get the stuff they needed. Oh, overall, generally, how is that any better than we saw six months ago with trying to get parts and things like that? Well, I would suggest that it is not necessarily improved. And okay. as we get closer to harvest, uh, we're going to see the impact with regards to um, that uh, supply of just-in-time materials for parts for combines and and that particular part. I know that there are people at this point in time being proactive in maintenance on their equipment, but it's the equipment breakdowns during the harvest season and and even haying season. and And I know that our our equipment suppliers are doing their best to provide an inventory of parts, but uh, we're just not sure of which part will break down. And so I would suggest that. Uh, it's not necessarily resolved at this point in time, and there still will be challenges uh, to be able to operate our equipment uh, when it's broken. And, and, and so that still is an issue ongoing. Uh, I guess I encourage producers to have a uh, conversation with their uh, suppliers and uh, just see where they're at and what particular issues, be it tires, um, you know, be it oil and, and fuel and all of those things, how they're going to be able to to supply them the best that they can. But communication will be important in, in dealing with supply chain issues. Great stuff, Bill, on the updates. I know uh, things could be a little bit better, but uh, things are also uh, moving along forward. So we appreciate it. Uh, enjoy the rest of those meetings, and thanks for taking the time again to, to share with us what the agriculture community is seeing in our province. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity, and uh, everybody in Manitoba, enjoy a great day. Now we want to talk about a new initiative, Fountain Tires taking part in. Jason DiBartolo of Fountain Tire in the city here joins me now. Uh, how are you, Jason? Thanks for doing this. No problem at all. Pretty good. How are uh, you? I got to admit, uh, somebody called into our morning show or texted in and said, can a Cadillac converter convert their car to a Cadillac? And since then, I've been calling it a Cadillac converter. That's not the right name, is it? No, it's not. But you're not the only one. Most people actually call it that. <laughs> so what's the proper way to say it? Catalytic. Catalytic, yes. I apologize. Yeah. And for our listener who texted in too, it's not a Cadillac converter. I got you. Thanks, Neil. I appreciate it. Catalytic converter. 
Um, let's. I think most people in our city, we've been covering this for months, and and how this is a hot item on the black market and and being stolen at a, an enormous rate, really. Um, let's first of all delve into what they do before we get into the issue around them. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's pretty simple. They uh, they crawl underneath the vehicle with a, a cordless sawzall and a metal cutting bit, and they hack it off. They just one end to the other and uh, walk away with it. And you don't know until you go to start your car the next morning and it's five times louder than it should be. And this is what, what does it do for the vehicle itself? Uh, it controls the emissions. So it, uh, it basically burns off any of the, you know, the remaining remnants of the fuel combustion uh, in the exhaust. So it gets really, really hot inside there and, uh, and it burns off the remaining um, contaminants that get then let out into the atmosphere via the exhaust. And in your experience, have you ever seen something like this where a certain item, especially on the black market, becomes so popular that, that this is what uh, kind of has been happening to the fact that uh, the rate they're being stolen? No, not since, uh, not since back in like the mid and late 90s when it seemed like everyone's car stereos were getting stolen every other day. But uh, since then, this has been like, it's unprecedented, really. Like our neighbor to the right of us here at my store has had their van three times you know and we know because it starts up in the morning at seven thirty, and and it shakes our whole building it's like oh not again oh, here we go wow. yeah. yeah it's everywhere we've had so many stories like that we had one business that said their trucks were parked out everybody could see them out through the window having coffee and uh you know they fire them up and there's six of them that are gone all in one night so uh, we understand yeah. it's a big problem so what is fountain tire this new initiative doing um uh, talk about the serial numbers and the painting that they're trying to offset this this um item being stolen so much right so uh crime stoppers reached out to us and um had a a plan to you know offer a bit of a program to act as a deterrent you know it's it's not perfect um the design of it but at the end of the day, all we can really do is try and stop them from choosing your car. Uh, so the program exists that, you know, we, uh, as the vehicles come in for service, we would uh, basically spray a very high-vis paint, uh, high-temperature paint on the catalytic converter as it cools down. And then we have these engravers, and we will then engrave the last eight digits of the vehicle identification number into the catalytic converter so that it is then traceable. Um, that's the biggest issue right now is that, you know, if the police catch a would-be thief with a bunch of cats, there's no traceable way to say that that cat came out of this car that's missing it. There's no discernible tagging or anything like that. So we're going to manually try to do that on as many as we can. It's, it's not going to be easy for us to do either because catalytic converters are incredibly hot. So trying to do that when they come in is going to be difficult. And then the time constraint with that, but we're going to do as many as we can. So the high-vis paint, the marking on the cat, and then we're going to put a, you know, again, if the client is okay with it, we're going to put a sticker in the window that's going to identify that this vehicle has now got a traceable marking on the catalytic converter, and it's been done. So, and so many people have been asking me, and, and all our shows when we're covering this topic, is like, well, how does a, a mechanic not know that it's stolen? And I would say, well, the people who have them stolen often get one, although supply chain is what's really driving the, this up and uh, for them being stolen. But really, when you bring it to a mechanic right now, it, it's just you could have actually purchased that because you had your stolen. You're not aware of, like, how that became uh, 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 in your possession. Right. Yeah, well, like, and, and these guys that are stealing them, right, they're going to the recycling yards and, and getting paid for them because the metals inside them are highly precious and very, very valuable. And that's where this whole thing comes from, right? And uh, right. so 
the city of Winnipeg police um, initiative partnered up with the Crime Stopper one is to, you know, go after the people that are buying these things and controlling that. And that in turn will then reduce the, you know, it'll reduce the value of these because if a thief can't cash it in without giving ID, having a photo taken, license plate of the vehicle he showed up in, uh, he needs to provide information on where he acquired it. If he can't provide any of that, then he can't sell it to the scrap. So that should close that door pretty quick and then partnered up with this program where we identify the vehicles and, and put discernible tagging on them. It hopefully is going to stop it like drastically. Yeah, hopefully for sure. Uh, has the process started or when, when can you first start seeing these with the new paint and the serial numbers? The process officially got kicked off uh, yesterday, I think, the 18th. Um, so, yeah, we've got the materials. Uh, you know, that we, all of our stores are or should be equipped with them now. It was a bit of a process to get them out to all 10 locations in Winnipeg, but um, as far as I understand, we all have them, and we're going to start doing um, we're going to start doing them as many as we can, and just kind of slowly get started with them and uh, and see how it goes. I know it's only been a day, but I, I would assume some of your customers are pretty happy with this initiative. Yeah, I haven't heard many from from any of the clients that have walked in so far, but I'm sure I'm going to. Um, but yeah, we're gonna. We're, like I said, we're going to do as many as we can. And, and for sure, if it's requested, uh, we'll definitely do our best to do it. It's, it's not something that people are going to pay for. It's, it's a service that we're going to offer for free as part of the program. It's just going to be a time constraint for us getting them done. Again, heat will be an issue, and, and then how fast we turn through cars is going to be the other issue. But we're going to do our best to get as many done as we can so this problem goes away. Right. That's exceptional. That was going to be my final question. Will there be an added cost to this uh, going to the consumer? And if there's not going to be, I, I don't know too many people that aren't going to request this. Right. That's kind of what we're expecting too. But, yeah, no, there will be no cost um, to, uh, to the end user. Um, it's just the, the biggest hang-up we have is, you know, I don't know that we're going to be able to do every car that comes through our shop. We're going to do as many as we can. Um, I think we're going to have to, you know, look at it objectively with cars that are going to be, say, tied up on a hoist for a while, getting other repairs. That gives us an opportunity to do them. But quick turnaround services and stuff, it'll be difficult. But over time, I think a lot of them will get done. And, you know, if anything else, this entire program being out in the media and being talked about, you know, it's already going to have an impact, I think, I would think so too, and and who knows who listens to 680 CJOB, but maybe some people are frowning on on uh, this kind of the black market industry going away. You never know who's listening, so um, we'll <laughs> yeah, see what exactly. happens. Jason, I really appreciate this. It's a great initiative, and we'll probably check back with you in a couple of weeks or a month's time just to see how overall how it's going. Thanks for doing this. No problem at all. My pleasure. Very pleased to welcome in Jessica Campbell, assistant coach, Coachella Valley Firebirds, but the first female coach in the American Hockey League. Jessica, how are you today? Hi, Jim. I'm great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining me today. Um, let's just start with your journey. You're a former player, national level as well. Um, how did you get into coaching? You know, my journey into coaching was pretty seamless. I transitioned right out of playing into skills and skating development. I actually kind of kicked everything off in Winnipeg as a skating coach. Um, that's where I specialized early on, and, and it, was a, it was an area in my game as a player. Skating was, a, was an asset of mine and a strength, and so I, I really dove deep into it in coaching, and kind of that's the piece that 
you know, I'm very passionate about is individual skating and skill development, but it, it's transitioned more now to obviously tactics behind the bench. And I'm a huge believer in skill development has to translate to the game. And my approach is, is as such. So here I am now I'm far more in the co- coaching space, but it's, it's been a fun journey from playing to coaching the last four years. And once you got into coaching, um, I just know your story from when you first, um, in my opinion, I knew I knew your name from the women's national program. And then a couple of years later, uh, I saw you, uh, well, this uh, offseason coaching um, the Germany team at, at the Olympics. How did you get into coaching men? When did that start? Yeah, so after kind of right before COVID, actually, the, the year before, I had an opportunity I was coaching, um, and I had an opportunity to go join a, a club in Sweden. So the Malmo Red Hawks, which is a club, uh, men's pro, pro league, I had an opportunity to join their staff on the 18-19 level as a, as a skating coach, and I spent four months with them, and, and that actually led to a longer-term contract opportunity. But then COVID hit, so I went into COVID, actually prepared to launch my own business as a skating coach, a skills coach, and when the rinks opened up, I was in a unique opportunity where the, the, the pros in my region, so in, in Kelowna and the Okanagan, were looking to get back on the ice to get ready for the bubble, for playoffs. And I was running some sessions, some small group development, and one guy came out, the next guy came out, and it just kind of kept going from there. And, and guys like Joel Edmondson, Damon Severson, players that were working on this area of their game, they kept bringing out more and more teammates. So. It went from working with rookies in the game to veterans in the league, and that really catapulted my then career as working on the play side of the men's, the men's side of the game and, and led to the conversations where I ended up in Nuremberg in the DEL in Germany this past season. I reside now in Chicago, work with the USHL team with Tri-City Storm and the Feeder Youth Club, but... I had a unique opportunity to head out to Germany this season and, and do skill development, skating development, and I ended up getting behind the bench and working on special teams with the coach, which the players responded and did a really good job, and it led to conversations with the German national team coach who brought me to world championships. So everything happened pretty quickly from two years ago in COVID, really taking those steps, working in skill development with the pro clients, and then led me to getting behind the bench at the pro level now. And what I like about the part of your story, Jessica, is the part about the the skating getting ready in the bubble, and the veterans started coming out. Really, it was yeah. word of, it was word of mouth about just what a great coach you were and what great work you were doing. It had nothing to do with anything else, your gender or anything like that. It was just simply word of mouth being that you know you're a really good coach. Yeah, and and you know what's unique about this scenario, I I I'm just a true believer in my coaching. And the level of my coaching is just a, a reflection of the product I put on the ice and how I show up, the, the detail, how I bring value add to any athletes that I work with. And, and I try to keep myself focused on that. And the opportunity that came to me was, yes, I had a unique, a unique opportunity where players were, were kind of scrambling, to be honest, to get themselves ready again. And, and I had some contacts who they reached out to me looking looking for that development but what was what was great about and what you just said is the guys obviously the hockey community is small but they all they all utilize the same coaches they rely on a lot of the same professionals and usually it's the best of the people in the business and they share those contacts so for me i was really fortunate that guys like Steverson and Edmondson you know next day that two grew to four and then that four grew to Seabrook and Chen and 
guys like Shea Weber, who, you know, for me, I just had to jump, you know, head first in and, and make sure I was doing the best that I could to serve these guys and get them ready. And thankfully, those guys have been my biggest advocates, which got me, uh, got me you know, from Sweden to Nuremberg to the national team. And then my experience in the national team opened up the conversation with Dan Balsma and the American Hockey League and Seattle Kraken. So I'm just very grateful that staying committed to my process and, and the product and being prepared, focused, and, you know, eager and hungry, always learning and kept me where I wanted to be. And tell us about getting hired by the Firebirds and Dan Bilesma because it, it was, is from what I read, it was a phone call that led to you being almost offered the job on the spot. It, it wasn't sort of; it was more of a, a phone call that might lead to an interview, but the the interview didn't really need uh, to take place after the phone call. Yeah, and I went through the process with Dan for sure. He reached out to me very unexpectedly. I returned home from World Championships, and you know I was prepared to you know reside continue to reside in Chicago and work here and go back and forth with Nuremberg as a skating and skills coach. And I definitely wanted to stay in the pro game and I didn't know how the pieces would connect, but I just felt if I kept doing what always worked and I would, you know, continue to open up the doors the right timing when I was, when I was ready and deserving. And so when Dan called me, I was definitely taken back and he done his research. He talked to guys from world championships and, you know, key players playing in the NHL that, were advocating for me and saying saying great things about my coaching and so for Dan, you know, when he reached out and asked me if I would be interested in, in an assistant coaching job with him and he was, you know, not even yet announced as a coach but he was trying to build his staff in advance, I felt both honoured and humbled obviously if I want a cop and knows what it takes to want it all at all costs and so I was very very excited knowing that he saw the value in me and wanted to continue to take those steps and help me continue to, to take the development steps as a coach at the pro level and full-time role. We're talking with Jessica Campbell, the first female coach uh, in the American Hockey League. She'll be uh, doing the Coachella Valley Firebirds with Dan Balsma this upcoming season. I I hope personally, Jessica, to get to a point where this isn't a story and it's just the norm. But has your experience, um, well, first of all, do you feel like a trailblazer? You know, I, I, I don't feel like a trailblazer until I start having the conversations and people come up to me and say thank you and they encourage and they, they, they share things like you're inspiring me and you're, you know, I had a conversation with, with Dallas Eakins, you know, at the draft and his, his young daughters and, you know, Dallas and coming up to me and saying, my daughters came up to me with their phone and a photo of a female coach and they see my dad and a female coach just like you. Like those are the stories that inspire me because ultimately I'm just focused on coaching. I've always had goals to be coaching at the pro level, whether it's the men's side of the game or the women's side. I wanted to coach professional hockey after I finished playing. And so I've kept my focus on that. And obviously with the opportunity that have come, I've, I've realized that I have this both privilege and, and pressure, but mostly privilege and opportunity to carry a course with so many that have similar aspirations. And we only know what we can see. And of course, the, the visibility is, is important. Of course, you know, having quality and an opportunity for females that have the same equal qualities and skill sets and knowledge of the game to have those opportunities at, at the pro level in the men's game is, is definitely deserving. But for me, I'm just keeping myself focused on really what matters to me. And that's being the best coach and being prepared and ready and, and confident and convicted in what I know. And, and to make sure that, like I said before, my product is a reflection of my work and my commitment to the staff and team I'm assigned to. And so I think in the process of all of that, if it opens up more doors and, and hopefully 
holds the door for, for females behind me, then that's what I'm very excited about. And it definitely motivates me every day knowing that there's extra weight around my role and around my opportunity that people are celebrating it. They're encouraging, they're, they're right, you know, getting already in behind me and in line to, to chase that goal now. So I'm excited about what can come of it. And I'm hoping that it no longer, you know, becomes a conversation in, you know, three to five years, it's more of a normalized thing. And to look back on it all. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I kind of feel bad because I'm the one asking you these questions and I'm the one making it part of the conversation. But it's it important. is because it's an important part of the conversation, of course. Yeah, because you are uh, legitimately a trailblazer. So but I assume hopefully we'll have you back some other times and it's just part of the conversation where we'll talk hockey. But having said that, has it yeah. been predominantly positive experience to this point or has there been some, you know, raised eyebrows, some 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 negative experiences along the way? You know, it's funny because what the media and the critics, I guess, you're always going to hear, no matter what, coaches are, you look at the NHL now and the, the critics and the, you go on social media, it's just unbelievable. But I don't pay attention to that stuff. I never have. I've, I've always seen myself as a coach. Obviously, optics and reality is, is I am a female coach and I have a, a female presence among the staff that I work with and the players that I work with. So, yeah, perhaps there's, there's a difference of optics, but the reality is, is we speak the same language of hockey. I have the same even playing experiences as the pros, and, and I'm trying to take all my experiences, but more so continue to be a, a student and, and just constantly studying the game to be the best coach that I can be at the pro level and having brought my experiences to the table to make sure that, that the, the pros that I'm working with understand that I am speaking that same level. But when it comes from negative reception, I haven't received one negative comment or pushback or been taken any different direction or non-seriously with, with the athletes I work with. They, they know when they get on the ice and understand that I'm, I'm truly in a position because I feel confident and passionate about what I, what I do. Um, I trust what I do and I, I try to stay, stay true to that in that process. And so I think the players receive that really well because ultimately at the end of the day, all they want is a coach that can help them and make them better. Like, doesn't matter, male or female, that's what athletes want. And I, I love that as a player. If that person can help me and that person's driven and passionate and eager and enthusiastic and wants to be here, then I want to learn from that person. And so I try to keep myself reminded and grounded in that and not really get caught up in, in the critics because reality is, is there's going to be a lot of things said, but really I'm, I'm a product of the work I put forward and the players are the ones to receive that. So I'm fortunate that there hasn't been any you know i guess barriers for me but some might expect that but there really hasn't and in fact if you look at my my story alone it's the players and the guys like brent seabrook and shea weber and those guys like shen that are calling and responding to the coaches who are asking about my ability and they're the ones that are opening up these doors for me because i'm very grateful for it but i I didn't stick my head out and apply, you know, and so I'm very, very honored to be able to be selected and to be put on this path to keep carrying that torch forward. That's so good to hear and very refreshing. And I love what you said there. I'm a product of the work that I put in. And I think that's the overall message that um, all young women um, should take heed from your story, especially Jessica. I got to go. I know you have to go. You have another appointment, but uh, just quickly, what's the ultimate goal for you? Would it be a national hockey league head coach? Absolutely. I mean, I want to coach at the pro level as high as I can go. And so I, I'm going to continue to aspire and work towards the goal of coaching in the National Hockey League. Absolutely. Someday. 
Well, any coach that can add to one player's skill or speed uh, is going to have a long career, and you seem to be doing that. So, Jessica, I really appreciate you taking the time. All the best, and I'm sure we'll check in with you as the season gets started as well. Congratulations and well-deserved. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Jim. Take care.